Well, as you know, we're in um, the Gospel of Matthew, particularly we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're in uh, chapter 6, and we're in what is commonly called the uh, Lord's Prayer, is actually the Disciples' Prayer. Um, Jesus um, gave this to us, the disciples, uh, to teach us how and for what to pray. For we're in verse 10 of Matthew 6. So if you'd like to look there in your copy of the Word of God this morning, Matthew 6, verse 10. How to Pray, Part 2. Verse 10, three words. Your kingdom come. The theme of the kingdom of God is like a thread in a garment. It runs throughout all of scripture. In the Old Testament it pertained to Israel. In the New Testament the church is added. It is a present reality. Yet it has a future component. John Bright, a commentator, professor, writes, the Bible is a, quote, book of the coming of the kingdom of God. End of quote. The subject of the kingdom of heaven, or God, is also like a diamond, having many facets. The kingdom, or reign of God, is central to all things eternal and temporal. In fact, human existence cannot be adequately explained or understood apart from the knowledge and understanding of the divine reign over human beings and their affairs. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, the petitions, or in this case the petition, the one we're looking at this morning, in verse 10, he was also teaching us about what to pray for. We are to include in our prayers God's priorities. We could put it like this. When considering these petitions, they are God's prayer list. He tells us what to pray for. Often we come to God with our prayer list. Here God says, this is what I want you to pray for. His plans, his programs, and his purposes in mind. In a word, our prayers are to be God-centered. Even the petitions that address our needs in the model our disciples' prayer are God-centered. And that it is he who meets them. And as he does so, he therefore enables us to seek the kingdom, to do the work of the kingdom of God. Another reason for Christ teaching us to pray this way, I believe, is this. Our Father allows us to be in on what he is doing and will do in the world. You see, we're not to be spiritual and we're not spiritual bystanders but participants in his work in the world with respect to his kingdom. 
your kingdom come that is to be a one of the petitions that we're to bring before our father it is an imperative in the original language that is it is a command but it is not a command for us to try to command God when he says your kingdom come we're saying in that imperative we're asking God to cause his kingdom to come it is remarkable that Christ has taught us to pray to our father that our father would cause his kingdom to come that's what I mean when I say he allows us to participate in what he is doing in the world and will do in the world he allows us to participate by our prayers and so when we say your kingdom come we're saying father would you cause the arrival of your kingdom let's talk about that kingdom that's our first point (laughs) today that's our only point his kingdom the kingdom of God is multidimensional as I alluded to earlier in the scriptural presentation so we must distinguish between the different aspects of God's kingdom let's look at the reality of his kingdom overall his universal kingdom Psalm 103 verse 19 says this the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all God is the ruler of the universe he has established his throne and everything in existence he is the ruler over them he rules over the material and immaterial universe let me give you for an instance Jesus teaches us that not even a sparrow, which are cheap birds. He says, not even sparrows can fall to the ground apart from your father's will. That, that's what you call meticulous sovereignty. A sparrow, probably we haven't even seen one this week, but God will not allow them to fall apart from his express will. He rules over the universe. Another example of his reign overall is in the supernatural sphere Satan and his fellow demons cannot make a move against us or anyone else for that matter unless they are he and they are granted permission from the most high and then it is to serve his purpose that's what I, I, I love about God's sovereignty even his enemies can only do what he lets them to do to accomplish his purpose remember Job it was God who said to Satan see my servant Job Satan didn't come up and say let me deal with Job no God said here you come here I got something for you see my servant Job remember Peter Satan asked permission to sift him Jesus said you can do everything to him you can you can cause him to deny me but you cannot separate him from his faith our father in his reign is overall he raises up and deposes leaders ask Nebuchadnezzar standing before Pontius Pilate Jesus said to the Roman procurator our governor in John 19 11, these words you have no authority over me unless it has been given you from above Pilate, though a moral agent and accountable to God for his actions, 
did not have ultimate control over the events related to Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. The only reason Pilate had that role of authority and position at that point is because God had given it to him. The reality is that even evil expressed in opposition to the divine reign overall is under his control. Ephesians chapter 1 in part reads this way, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Nothing unfolds in human history. Nothing unfolds anywhere at any time apart from the counsel of God's will. Nothing happens in your life at any time, at any moment, no matter what it is, apart from his will. And that ought to be comforting to you, right? Overall. He rules over all. Next thing we need to see about God's kingdom when we read the words here, your kingdom come, defining kingdom in its multifaceted nature. It's spiritual form. It's what we address now. It's spiritual expression. In the universe, on the earth in particular, there are sinners God rules over sinners this facet of the kingdom the spiritual aspect of the kingdom was a constant theme in Jesus' preaching said Matthew chapter 4 verse 17 verse 23 Luke a number of places Jesus was going about preaching the kingdom of God. He called men to repent and believe the gospel. He's calling men to the spiritual form of the kingdom. What is the spiritual form of the kingdom? It is the realm of salvation. It is the sphere in which he rules over the hearts and minds of his subjects. No subjects or the Beatitude people <laughs> in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, it says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Beatitude people are in the spiritual kingdom. Beatitude, they are blessed. They have divine favor. They are fortunate. Because they have been Beatitudes just lays out what we are. If you're a Christian, if you're a beatitude person, you're in the kingdom. You entered by the narrow gate. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate. An invitation from Jesus. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Those who are beatitude people, they enter through the narrow gate. They enter through by faith in Jesus Christ. And it leads to eternal life. The others who refuse are on the broad road to destruction, eternal destruction. You want to enter by the narrow gate. You receive eternal life. Jesus promised that to his uh, sheep. He would give them eternal life. 
Now, let me let you understand uh, that those who enter through the narrow gate, those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, did not enter into the kingdom by their own power, their own goodness, good works, or righteousness, but by the new birth. The new birth is the sovereign prerogative of the king. Remember, he rules. You don't get in the kingdom just because you want to. And you don't want to unless he works in you to want to. He lets those whom he will into his kingdom because he rules over all. He rules over sinners. He is sovereign. He can do what he chooses with human beings. The spirit sovereignly regenerates or gives a new birth according to John chapter 3 verse 8. On the other hand, men are commanded to repent. Men are commanded to turn from their sin and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. Men are accountable to God. They're responsible for God for what they do with their life. But yet, on the other end, God is the one who summons them by his grace and power into his kingdom. Amen. He knows. Yes, sir. Out of the mouth of babes. Now, I want you to understand something. If you're a Christian this morning, you're in the body of Christ and you're there because of the sovereign grace of God who called you from your sin. And now you're in the kingdom of heaven. And the father for us so Christians, we read the book of Colossians and we see uh, the wonderful truth in Colossians chapter one, verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. It's a wonderful word there. It says he rescued us. You that word rescued, he delivered us from danger. We were in danger of hell and he rescued us. Think about that sometimes. We can read scripture and overlook words. Don't do that. Think about it. You have been rescued. The domain of darkness. Transferred into the kingdom of his dear son. That's a reality. A great and gracious reality from the king. Who happens to be, if you're a Christian, your heavenly father. And he is your heavenly father because he rescued you from Satan's dominion. And he placed you in the dominion of the kingdom of his son. That's what we're, we're talking about. Our life being changed. The day Jesus came into our life. That's what we're talking about. And that transformation is such that it changes the way we live. We can't live like we used to. We have new attitude, a new heart. We have a new disposition. We have a new love. We have a new song. All of that has happened when we came to faith in Jesus Christ. When we entered the kingdom, we left that stuff behind. Yes, there's still temptation, but we have a new way of living and walking now. It's a reality. See, salvation not only will take you to heaven, but will help you to walk right here on earth before you get there. There's a future aspect of this spiritual kingdom to be fully realized in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. It delineates who won't inherit the kingdom. 
In fact, in that passage of scripture, twice the word inheritance is used and it lets us know people who practice the sins that are listed there by the Apostle Paul will not inherit the kingdom. They're not in the kingdom and they will not end up in the final expression of the kingdom. Paul had to state that again in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. It's important to know. When a person is converted to Jesus Christ, they're in the kingdom. We pray for souls to be saved. When we say, your kingdom come, we're also saying, Father, save others. That they may come into their king, your kingdom. We're asking the Father to save sinners. That they may come un- under the rule of our Father, who is also the king. Now, I'm going to tell you something. You say, well, I don't know what's so special about the kingdom. I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you something. Nothing better than the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives parables. And in the parables, he tells you of the incomparable value of the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 13 couple of parables we'll just briefly look at right now to substantiate this point the kingdom of God the spiritual aspect is of incomparable value verse 44 the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again and from joy over it he goes and sells all that has and buys that field he understood the value and the value is such he said I'm going to sell everything to get this and what he's talking about, the kingdom of heaven, salvation here. Jesus is saying salvation is the greatest treasure there is. You, would, you should sell everything to get it. Now, he's not talking about literally selling your property, but he's saying give up everything to enter in, get this kingdom. Again, in verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl, pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Tells you something right there about the value of the kingdom. It is better than all the world's gold, silver, diamonds, rubies combined. These metals and gems can only make a person rich temporarily. That is in this life. But the possession of the kingdom makes a person spiritually and eternally rich. I'm going to tell you something. I saw where uh, um, the Chiron, the crawl on, on television, was saying the, uh, the, the lottery. It's a huge amount of money. And somebody would probably win it. I'm thinking, big deal. You win all of that. But you're not in the kingdom. You're still broke where it counts. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I don't care if you've got a billion dollars. If you're not in the kingdom, you're still broke. You're broke where it counts. Because you do know you're not going to take it with you. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is worth giving up everything to obtain. That is, turn your life over entirely to Jesus Christ and follow him. Because it pays eternal wealth and dividends. 
So if you're in the kingdom of heaven, saying, I want you to understand something. You've been born from above by the Holy Spirit. You're a child of the Father. You are wealthy beyond your wildest, most imaginative dreams. You need to understand that. You got some wealth that the world cannot calculate. I, I heard, I think, not long ago that Apple, the company, they're worth a trillion dollars, market capitalization. I say, well, what's a trillion dollars? You die without Christ. Amen. This wealth the kingdom confers is a wealth you cannot lose. You never file for bankruptcy with this wealth. It's a spiritual kingdom. There's another expression of the kingdom. It's a future expression. The future form or aspect of the kingdom has two expressions. Um, in Acts chapter 1, you've read this. If you've read the word of God, Acts chapter 1, or you've heard these words, Acts chapter 1. Verse 9 records the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ back to heaven after his redemptive work and ministering to his men for, for 40 days, proving to them he indeed had been raised from the dead. And after verse 9, he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. When we pray, get this, when we pray, your kingdom come, we're asking God to cause his kingdom to come at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is going to come physically. He's going to come visibly. He is going to come, come with the clouds signifying deity. He is going to come in judgment. He is going to come and he's going to establish his kingdom. That's the promise from God. In the Old Testament, God promised to King David that he would have an eternal kingdom with an eternal throne with a descendant on of his to sit on that uh, eternal throne. Second Samuel chapter 7 verse 12. It's called the Davidic covenant. That descendant is going to sit on that throne that God promised him. Is the greater son of David. None other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The divine Messiah. And God's going to keep that promise to David. In fact Peter. You're still in the book of Acts? Amen. Chapter 2, Peter, in the inaugural sermon of the Christian age, he is preaching there in Jerusalem. The day of Pentecost has occurred. He stands up and he preaches the living word of God. He's talking about none other than Jesus Christ. He's communicating to them in chapter 2 of Acts, verse 25. 
this truth about the divine Messiah who will sit on David's throne, a literal earthly throne. Verse 25, for David says, now what he is doing is quoting David from Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. He goes on and on. Verse 27, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Verse 29, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had, get this, sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. He looked ahead and spoke, the prophet David, who was also king, spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades as the grave, nor did his flesh suffer decay. God raised Jesus Christ up from the dead because God had promised David that he would have an eternal throne with one of his descendants to sit on it and that descendant is Jesus so he had to raise him from the dead so Jesus can sit on that throne in the future. It's coming. And he will do it. He's going to come back at his second coming. And there will be nobody who will be able to stop him. Uh, there won't be any trials. Kangaroo courts. He won't be coming back to die on a cross. He won't come back in humiliation. He'll come back in glorification. He came the first time in weakness. But it's going to come back the next time in power. The, most of the world didn't know he was here the first time. But when he comes back the second time. Oh everybody's going to know him. They're going to look upon him whom they pierced and they're going to weep. The Jews will. And the rest of the world recognize, oh, that is the Lord Jesus whom we've doubted all our life. Here he is now, our glorious power, and we can't stand. He's coming back. Hmm. He's going to uh, sit on the throne of his father. The angel Gabriel told Mary before Jesus was conceived in her womb going to reign now in the Old Testament you need to understand something he literally reigns on earth in the last days as Isaiah chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 tells us in Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7 for a child will be born his son is given and I will drop down to verse 9 it says there will be no end to the increase of his government are of peace when Christ reigns he is going to take the reins of government Indeed, he's going to be in charge and the whole world will be profoundly changed. Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 through 10 pictures the blessings of Christ's rule and its effects on the on international relations. Nature will be changed. The spiritual character of the world will be transformed. We will at that point in human history have a supernatural ruler with supernatural knowledge, wisdom and power. You'll know how to rule. There will be justice, equity, peace. See, rules of the entire world. Our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> the one we love. The one we serve. He's going to be in charge of the whole world. Here. Running the world. I can't wait to that day, frankly. I'm looking forward to that day. 
I just want to be out there somewhere serving him somehow while he's running things from Jerusalem. I just want to be, I'm looking forward to that day. And I'm going to tell you, the world's going to go through some trials. You know, we're having some problems in the world now. And that's, let me tell you something about the world. The world's going to have problems because the world's full of sin. Rebellion. What do you expect? Yeah, there are going to be viruses. Yeah, it's going to be worse in the tribulation period. It's going to be all kinds of stuff unleashed. The judgment from God. Do understand, we live in a, a planet that's in rebellion against its creator. But I will say this, however, we thank God for his grace. Things could be far worse. But what God in his grace does, he withholds from his creation because he's a loving, gracious God. Uh, let me say something. Don't take this the wrong way. I'm going to tell you something. You don't know, do you not know why we have vaccines? Because God in his grace gave men the intellectual ability and science to figure this stuff out to protect us. It's his grace. Did you not know that? Just like they did with the polio vaccine. You know why this country got rid of polio? Because Salk and those guys figured out how to deal with it with vaccines. We all lined up, got our vaccine. Polio is gone. It's grace. Common grace. I just want to share that with you. Sometimes people have some ideas about things. You think, give God glory for what He has done in blessing in the natural arena. My wife was thankful that for a couple of days it wasn't as hot. It cooled down. It's funny. We kind of laugh about the fact that it cooled down three degrees. <laughs> And a little cloud cover and the sun wasn't beating down. That's God's goodness, isn't it? Gave us r- relief. And may I say this? We don't deserve it. But he's a God of grace. Now I'm going to tell you something. We're going to move to a period of history, human history. God's already ordained it. It's going to happen. We're talking about Christ and this future kingdom where he's going to come. He's going to rule. Roman, uh, Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Would you turn there just for a moment? Revelation 11, verse 15. Where this period of time is coming. It's called tribulation. And it says something here. Then the seventh angel sounded. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. Did you get that? The seventh angel, the seventh trumpet is going to sound trumpet judgments. There are seal judgments and there are trumpet judgments. The seventh one is the seventh of the trumpet judgments, the final one. And it will unleash the bold judgments, the most severe. But when that happens, the people in heaven will say the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. Let me just give you, it's interesting the text says, the Holy Spirit says the kingdom of the world. He didn't say the kingdoms of the world, plural. Kingdom, singular. Let me give you a little help here. God sees all the governments of the world as the same. 
they're in opposition to him. Isn't that amazing? Calls him the kingdom of the world under Satan's leadership. But he's going to depose them, going to destroy them. And the king of our Lord and of his Christ, our Messiah, reign forever and ever. That's coming. That's what we look forward to. As God unleashes his judgment and prelude to Christ's coming. And that's what that event will lead up to. In Revelation uh, 19, verse 11. Just give me, let me give you a little chronological outline of here. What that looks like as it unfolds. Verse 11. Revelation 19 and I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on it called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war and all the way through that we see what Jesus Christ does in symbolic language talking about him coming back judging the world to establish his kingdom Revelation chapter 20 verses 4 through 6 I'm not going to read the verses, but I want you to understand that kingdom, messianic kingdom, when Christ establishes his kingdom on this planet, he is going to reign for a thousand years. And those who belong to him will reign with him in a thousand years. They're the people who are in the first resurrection, the resurrection of the righteous, or the resurrection of saints for a thousand years. Literal thousand years. Those, the number is literal. It's not figurative. It's a definite period of time. And when that reign is consummated, Christ has put down all his enemies, including Satan, sin, all of that. Then we're going to see the final form. I told you there are two aspects of this future kingdom. The second is the eternal aspect. Eternal aspect. Revelation 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. When that happens, the fall will be canceled out, the curse eliminated, sin abolished, and death destroyed. That's the eternal state. I said a moment ago, I can't wait to the earthly kingdom of Christ. I can't wait for this one either. Because what Christ is going to do once he deals with all his enemies in the thousand year reign and the blessings of the world, all of that, then he's going to turn the kingdom over to the Father, 1 Corinthians 15, and God's going to be all in all. Second Peter chapter 3. Um, let me uh, show you something. Second Peter 3 verse 11 Peter's talking about the, the coming of the Lord and the, the, sh the day of the Lord and the destruction of this current universe he says in verse 11 since all these things are to be destroyed in this way what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness that'll motivate you in sanctification this is, this, this, may I say to you this world's passing away and one day it's going to be utterly destroyed. This universe is gone. 
To me, it doesn't make sense. It shouldn't make sense to any Christian to put all your hopes in, in this world. Put your hopes in the things to come. Because this is temporary. This is not permanent. And this is our attitude. Look what it says in verse 12. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Let me tell you what this is saying. We are to look for and we are to hasten. That word hastening means eagerly desiring. That's what the Greek behind this says. Eagerly desiring. The day of God. The day of God there refers to the eternal state. That's what you and I ought to be desiring. Looking forward to eternally. And let me give you a little context. The people to whom Peter wrote, they knew a thing or two about persecution. They knew a thing about trouble in this life. But he is writing, and this is what God wanted them to do. Hey, look forward to and eagerly anticipate and desire the coming of the eternal state. That is the Christian position. Now, we pray your kingdom come. That's what we're talking about. The final form of the kingdom is the eternal state, the heavenly kingdom. What do you think John prayed? John, the apostle who wrote Revelation, wrote the gospel of John, who was Jesus' disciples, of course. At the end of his book, Revelation 20, verse 20 he quotes our Lord Jesus Christ verse 20 he who testifies to these things says yes I'm coming quickly those are Jesus' words you go through all of the book of Revelation you come in Jesus says yes I'm coming quickly that ought to be our response to the reality that Jesus is going to come suddenly into this world. He's going to take over this world. We say, yes, come Lord Jesus. That was John's prayer. In effect, he was praying, your kingdom come. To pray your kingdom come is the desire to return of Christ. We want to see him honored and glorified on this very planet. We want to see people bowing down before him and seeing his, his wisdom and glory and power. And in the eternal aspect of the rule, God will rule and it will be unchallenged. It will be perfect harmony, peace, joy, love forever and ever and ever and ever. Jesus said, pray, your kingdom come. So when you do that, that's what you're praying about. All the things we've talked about this morning. So Lord, let your kingdom come. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God and our Father, we bless your name for the reality of these eternal truths. We pray that um, anyone who's outside your kingdom, you summon them to it. Grant them grace to repent of their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for those who are saved, that our hearts and minds will be more focused on eternal matters. We'll be more eternally concerned and temporarily transfixed on the fleeting issues of life it can so easily distract us from things that matter things that you say matter 
grant that we'll know better and better as we grow in your word. We pray for anyone here this morning who is a Christian, unchurched, need one. They'll join here and serve with us. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.